Well, we're learning about we're learning about we're going going through a brainwashing process here. That's just a, another way of saying we're learning how to renew our mind. We began last week a series which is based on a course that I've taught in School of Ministry for a number of years. Uh, and I did a, a section of this, I think it was last year, they were reminding me. But it was only a small part of it. We're going to do the whole thing from beginning to end. So we'll have a foundation laid, which we started last week. And uh, we talked about that what the Bible says about the mind. And by the way, we're posting these notes uh, on the website. Right on the f- face of the website, there's a link to these notes. And uh, there were some scriptures that didn't get posted this week from last week that I went through, but they're up there now. And uh, so sometime tomorrow, the notes from tonight, when I see how far we get tonight, uh, we'll get up there and they'll, they'll give you the scriptures and so you can pull them up and study them. And uh, uh, so, all right, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. We've talked about why it's important to renew the mind and what the Bible says about the mind. The Bible says a whole lot about the mind. And we're going to learn as we get into this course more and more about that. But the principal scripture that we're going to use as our foundation, and really uh, it is the principal scripture in the Bible on renewing the mind, is in Romans chapter 12. And so we will start out there, and we're not going to get very far at first. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... Stop right there. I've been training you. That whenever you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. That's just a little expression to teach you when you see that word to stop. Because that word is a conjunction, is a connection. It is saying that what he is about to say is based on what he already said. That's important to understand because so much of the time we just take scriptures and, and you know, you may only read like a few scriptures a day. You really ought to read more than that or a, or a chapter. You know, I, when I read books in the New Testament, I'll, I'll often just sit down and read the whole book. Uh, some of them I may have to divide in, you know, two sections, read one section. And I'll read, I may take a book and read the same book every day for a week. It's amazing what you'll get if you just keep reading it over and over because it's a living word. It's a living word. When I first got saved, I started with the book of Ephesians. And I said, well, you know, I've never read this before, so I'm going to take this book and I'm going to read it every day for a week. But I'm sure by the time I get to Thursday, you know, I, this is going to be boring. I'm going to want... I got to the end of the first week and did it a second week. I got to the end of the second week and did it a third week. I got into the third week and I did it a fourth week. And after the fourth week, I decided I better go into something else or I'll never get out of the book of Ephesians. And I really discovered firsthand it is a living word. But, but what happens is we've got to understand there's a, there's, a, there's a thought process that's going through here. And we're learning about thinking. And so when you see the word therefore, Paul's arguing a case. And what he's telling you is what I'm about, what he's saying here is, look, I beseech you. So what he's going to tell them to do is something he's urging them, encouraging them strongly to do. He's not just teaching a principle, although Paul was a brilliant teacher, but he's trying to motivate them to do something that's very important. And what he's saying is, I am beseeching you to do what I'm about to tell you to do. But he's not just beseeching you for no reason at all. He says, therefore, in other words, based on everything I've just said to you, I'm urging you to do what I'm about to tell you to do. So we're going to start this evening by looking back and seeing what he's there for him. 
what the therefore is therefore. What he's, why he's beseeching us, what he's encouraging us based on. And you don't need to go back through it. We're going to take a very quick survey of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, which is one of the most powerful central books in the Bible, especially the New Testament. So look at what he says here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And what we're going to see is the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is all about disclosing the mercy of God. Chapter 1 tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It talks about what the world system believes, and then it says that the gospel is given to deliver us out of the systems of the world. It's the power of God to deliver, to save us and deliver us. Chapters 2 and 3 then say that none of us measure up to God's standards. Chapter 1 says the world at its very best is falling way short because the world has decided that God doesn't exist. It doesn't need God because we can figure this whole thing out by ourselves. And if you want to know how great a job we are, just look at tomorrow morning's news. Or the next day or yesterday, we're not doing too good a job on our own. But it starts by saying the world on its own is trying to get rid of God so that, so that we can handle this all by ourselves. Chapters 2 and 3 says none of us measure up to God's standards. It's important to understand because most of us are still trying to do that. None of us. None. None. That includes you. None. No one. Ever. Except one. Has measured up to God's standard on our own because it's perfection. Chapter 4 says, although none of us has measured up to God's standard, we are all can be saved by faith in the promise that God has made. We're saved by, only by our faith in what, in what God has done through Jesus Christ. So chapters 2 and 3 says that you can't make it on your own. Because the standard's too high. Chapter 4 says, God doesn't expect you to make it on His own. He's already paid for your sin. All you've got to do is believe in Jesus Christ who paid for your sin and then you can have this salvation without earning it yourself. Chapter 5 says, having received that salvation, we now stand before God in grace and peace because we've received that finished work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6 says that because we've received that grace, we can now, we're now free from the power of sin. We're no longer under the bondage of sin. We no longer have to sin because we're no longer under the law, but we're now under grace. See, the law says you've got you've to be perfect in order to enter the kingdom of God. And because of that, do you ever, ever notice this principle? I know you as children you notice it, but it's also true, especially when it comes to certain foods. If, if you've decided you're going on a diet and you know you can't eat something, that's when you want it most, isn't it? Yeah. If you can't have candy, you want it more than if you, if you can. It's just something in our flesh that if I can't have it, I want it more. That's the bondage. To, so if we're told we can't ever sin that's going to increase the desire to sin. 
And so chapter 6 starts out by saying, well, if we're now in grace, does that mean that, you know, where grace, where sin abounds, grace does more abound? Does that mean we should sin even more so that grace abounds more? Paul basically says, then you don't understand grace. Because if you really understand grace and what it cost him, you'd never want to presume on that grace. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 talks in more detail about what God has done for us in this grace. Chapter 7 talks about Paul's struggle with trying to live right before God in his own effort. And he says, it ends by saying, Who's gonna do, who can deliver me from this body of sin? Who can be deliver me from this body? Because the only trouble I've got in this world is this body I live in. He says, inside of me, I want to do what's right. And every time I want to do what's right, this filthy body gets me in trouble. The only trouble you ever get into as a Christian is because of your flesh and listening to your flesh. So he ends by saying, Who's gonna, who can deliver me from this? And he ends by saying, Thanks be unto Jesus Christ, because He's delivered you from it. And chapter 8, with that powerful chapter, says, And here's the deliverance. There is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Why? Because what the law could not do, because of the weakness of my flesh, because the law depended on my flesh, and my flesh is weak. So what the law could not do because of the weakness of my flesh, here's it, God did. What I couldn't do because my flesh is weak, God, out of His grace and love, did for me. We're talking about His grace, His mercy. For what the law could not do, because of the weakness of my flesh, God did. How did He do it? Sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh, as an offering for sin, He condemned my sin in His flesh, so that the requirement of the law should not... Because I could not live under the requirement of the law. That's mercy, my brother and sister. Then chapter, so what he's, chapter 8 is saying is he took our condemnation. He's conforming us to his image. He's justified us. He's glorified us. If he's for us, who can be against us? If he spared not his own son, but delivered him as for us all... How can He not also together with Him freely give us all things? And He ends with that powerful verse saying, I am persuaded that neither height nor depth, nor principality nor power, nor things, nor, nor things to come, nor things past, nor things to come, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I love those words, I'm persuaded. That means Paul didn't learn that in a theological seminary. Paul learned it through life, through walking this journey out. Chapter 7 shows the journey. He struggled with learning this. He struggled with trying to live right before God. He struggled with it and discovered on his own he couldn't do it. And it was in the process of that struggle and falling on his face that he found out what the mercy and grace of God really is. You have to come to the end of yourself before you find where the mercy of God is. Until you do that, it's a theory, it's a concept, it's a principle. But when by the grace of God you see 
what you can do on your own and how, what you're capable of on your own. And that you and I are not the big spiritual hotshots we think we are on our own. When by God's grace, and it takes His grace to show us that. Because we have a spiritual pride to think. I may not be as bad as so-and-so, but I'm better than they are. And God's so gracious, He'll let you go and show you what you can do. Until you skin your knees, bump your nose, and then like a loving father, He'll pick you up, dust you off, and say, all right, you thought you could run so... (laughs) Ever see a child just beginning to walk, and they get a little self-confident, and they try to go too fast? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you ever fallen going up a stairs? It's because you were trying to go too fast. You were trying to handle the stairs faster than you were capable of doing, and so you fell. It's the revelation of who we are apart from Him and what we, can, what we are capable on our own and how weak we are. Paul had to get that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul cried out three times for God to deliver him from a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him. And God's answer each time was, my grace is sufficient. God wasn't saying no, because Paul was trying to handle that in his own strength. And God's answer to him is, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, I finally got it. He says, I've learned to glory in my weaknesses. Now, he doesn't mean, you know, he was trying to be weak. He was recognizing his weaknesses, that on his own he couldn't do that. And he was glory. He, instead of glorying in what... This is what we want to do is glory in our strengths. Well, I'm good at this, and I'm good at that. Paul learned to glory in his weaknesses. Why? He says, because in my weaknesses, I've learned that his strength is perfected. It's all about the mercy of God. And then in chapters 9 and 10, Paul begins to transfer this discussion of this grace to the nation of Israel. And he says this amazing thing. He says, if I could, I would give up my salvation if that would cause my brethren to be saved. And then he warns us as the church. He says, don't get too high and mighty because you know we're capable of that because we forget it's only His grace and mercy that got us here. That's the story of Jonah is so powerful. Because one of the things Jonah's in the Bible to remind us of, because Jonah was a prophet of God. And Jonah was, was so confident in his relationship with God because he was a Jew, that when God told him to go to preach to Nineveh, which was the, the most ungodly city on the earth at the time, Simply, you know, repent because in, in, in seven days you're going to be destroyed, or whatever they were. Um, Jonah wouldn't do it. Why? Because he was afraid that if they repented, God would be merciful to them. And in Jonah's mind, they were so evil. Listen carefully, because this was his thinking. They were so evil, they didn't deserve his mercy. In Romans 9 and 10, God talks about that mercy. He says, you ask and say, how can a just God harden Pharaoh's heart 
and then judge him for having a hard heart. He says, you don't understand. Who are you to ask the question of how God administers his mercy? Now listen carefully because it's an important lesson. Who are you to question how a holy God administers his mercy? Because what Jonah was saying is, it's not fair that you forgive them. Oh, well, wait a minute. The mercy we received, the mercy that we received, is that because we earned it? You have to understand, mercy is not given because it's obligated to be given. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 9. Mercy is a free gift of God. He's not obligated to give it at all. So if we're talking about what's fair and right, what's fair and right is we all burn in hell. We, We didn't get what was fair and right. I don't know about you. I don't know. I don't want what's fair and right from God. I mean, listen, do you? I'm alive today. I'm a child of God today because I didn't get what was fair and right. Instead of getting what was fair and right, I got mercy. So how can I question how God administers mercy as if somebody has a right to it? The very essence of mercy is you don't have a right to it. It's given to somebody that doesn't deserve it. But our, our minds, once we've been walking with God for a while, well, actually not walking that closely with Him if we get stuck on this, is that we begin to think we're where we are because somehow we've done something right. The only thing you did right is realize how wrong you were. And even that took His mercy to show you. What what Ephesians 2 says, and even this grace, even this, this faith is a gift of God. The faith by which you got saved was given to you. And so... Paul talks about that, about the attitude we can have about the Jews. He says, God's will is that they all get saved. And he says, warns the church, be careful, because you were the artificial branch that was grafted in to the natural tree. And you were grafted in because they rejected him. Now let's go to Hebrews 11, to Romans 11. Let's go to the end here. And so what he's saying is here, God allowed them, because they walked away, God is using the church and His mercy and favor on the church to make the nation of Israel jealous because they're going to see the grace and mercy in the Gentiles' lives that they had a right to by covenant at one point and they rejected Christ when He came. And God's plan is that they see God's love and mercy in the church and realize this is what was intended 
to them. But his warning is, if they would be broken away because of their own hard-heartedness, and they were the original covenant people, how much more are we capable of being broken off if we also become prideful? And then this is what he says. This is where we're ending up. Verse 28, chapter 11. Concerning the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, which was the original covenant, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That's the patriarchs. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. We use that verse a lot, but he's talking about the Jews. God's covenant that he made with them was eternal. He's not rejected it. They have. But it's still out there for them. For you were once disobedient to God when we were, before we came to Christ. And yet you've now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also now who have been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. And then Paul, after 11, 10 chapters and 31 verses, Paul, this, this mercy just wells up in him. He's not just sitting down writing. This is pouring out of him at this. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways are past finding out. He's having His own private worship service there. He is so caught up in the revelation of how merciful God is, how patient God is, how long-suffering God is, not just in His life, but He's looking back by the Holy Spirit at the nation of Israel and the history of them that having rejected Christ, having crucified Him, God's still working with them. God's still using us as a witness to reach out to them. His heart is still open to them. His mercy is still extended to them. And he's seeing this and he said, oh, oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and the mercy, riches of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? He's not saying you can't understand God. What he's saying is God's so much bigger than we can imagine. I've been, it's been welling up in me. He is so good. He is so good. He is so good. He's so good in your life and you and I are blind to 98% of it. So good. This is what Paul's getting a revelation of. For who is first of all given to him, and it shall not be paid, repaid? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom being glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by all these mercies we've just been talking about, by all these mercies, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. See, Paul's pattern in most of his letters is this. He starts out, and it's a good pattern to run your own life by. He starts out by reminding them of what God's done for them. It's a good way to start your day out. I've been just every day getting up 
We're citing the first few verses of Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to say praise to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness, that's His faithful love, in the morning and at the night when you look back on the day and His faithfulness at night. So I get up in the morning and declare His loving kindness towards me all day long. He's with me all day. I have His favor, His grace, His love. That word in, in the Hebrew is chesed, and it is a word that goes beyond any, any English word we have to describe the... It's, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's just, how many times was it? It's in some notes I have on some. It's over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Describes God's patient, loving kindness. And the greatest example of it is, is, is in the book of Hosea. The story of Hosea where God took the prophet and told him to go marry a harlot as an example of God's... And, and he kept after her and after her. And she, when she was pretty and she was running around doing her thing, she would reject him and his heart was still open to her. And that when she got old and worn out by the men and no, no use or value of anybody, she finally came crawling back to him and his heart was open to receive her. Because none of what she did changed his hasid, his loving kindness, steadfast love. The term we sing, this verse we sing about, your steadfast, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's that same word. His love, his commitment, covenant love towards you. So I get up in the morning and I declare, that's what Psalm 19, declare that over my day. God's with me through this day. His steadfast love. If he was with me yesterday, why is he going to leave me today? If he's brought me this far, why is he going to leave me today? Why is he going to... Because he doesn't change. Our feelings change. What we see and sense changes, but he doesn't change. And then I look back at the end of the night and say, and his faithfulness at night. Therefore I beseech thee, brethren. So Paul starts out by saying, this is what God's done for you. As a result... This is what we can do. Because most of the time, we have trouble doing what God tells us to do because we haven't changed our image of who we are. And that's what this course is primarily about. We're going to learn that the Word of God, and most of you have been around long enough, know what the Word of God says about you. The problem is, we know in our head what it says about us. But we haven't changed the image that we have of ourselves. So we sit in church and we sing prizes and songs about, uh, you know, the Lord loves me and, and I am a child of God, I am a friend of God, and all these songs that we sing and we enjoy. And we leave that image in our own blue seat here that's been assigned to us. And we go back out into the world and at that door we, we pick up the old image we have of ourselves because it fits better, because we're more used to it. And the process of renewing our mind is learning to change the image we have of ourselves to line up with who God says He's made us to be, not who our parents and children, teachers and all the other things in life told us growing up who we are. You know they told you who you were, and they told you what you can do. So Paul starts out, the purpose of these first 11 chapters is to tell them this is the mercy of God that's been given to you. Now, therefore, brethren, because of that. And so that's all in those first few words. That's in the word therefore. 
You didn't know that was all in the word therefore, did you? But I want to teach you. So how do you get this? Because I'll take a word therefore and I'll go back and start asking the question, what goes before it? What's he saying that's the basis of what he's about to say? He tells you what it is. Therefore, by the mercies of God, first thing he tells you to do is to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that. I was having that discussion with the Lord today. See, I've learned when there's something I don't want to do to talk to him about it. Don't run away. Go talk to him about it. Get, on, get honest. But you know, he knows. He's not going to be shocked. <gasps> you don't want to do that? I, my goodness, I didn't know that. But see, the reason we can have confidence to make a living sacrifice is we see who, we, who he's made us to be. Because he's basically saying, let go of who you used to be and receive who I've made you to be. But you can't do that if you don't believe that He's a God of mercy. If you don't believe that He's merciful. If you don't believe that He's long-suffering with us. If you don't have a perspective on His love and His mercy. See, you, can't, you won't do anything meaningful for God until you really know He loves you. You'll obey Him because you have to. You'll give because you're supposed to. But you won't do those things out of your heart until you really know He loves you. Because to let go of things, including our bodies, we have to know to whom we're entrusting them. Paul says at the end of his journey, I know whom I've entrusted these things to. I put my life into your hands, God, and I know whom I entrusted my life to. The living sacrifice doesn't mean you slay yourself. What it means is you take everything that you've built your life around that's been important to you, that you've made your self-image around, your reputation around, your security around, all the things you've built into your life that you've drawn your value, your security, your protection, all these things from. He's asking you to make a sacrifice of that. But you can't do that until you know the God you're letting it go to that you can trust yourself to Him. That's why Paul didn't start with this. He spent 11 chapters preparing us. So you see now, if you just start in chapter 12, verse 1, you're going to feel an obligation without the incentive and the motivation that's behind the choice that we're asked to make here. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, fortunately for this course, we're not going to talk more about that, but we need to do that. Verse 2, and this is what we're getting to. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's really three parts in there. There's one part He's telling us not to do. There's another part He's telling us of what to do. And then the third part is why it is so important. So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. And we'll, the rest of the course is built on this. So the first thing He says is something not to do. Do not be conformed 
to this world. I believe the reason this is the first instruction is because if you don't do this first, you won't be able to do the next one. Because as you understand, this world that you and I live in, this, this world, there's two Greek words for, primary Greek words in the New Testament for world. One is, one is a word that means the systems of this world, the processes of this world, because this world has rules and systems that it operates by. And the other world is a word is ionis, which has to do with the spiritual atmosphere. And the Bible teaches us that Satan is the god of both of those. When he was cast out of heaven for his rebellion, he was cast down to the earth. And, 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 and God came down here and established his a kingdom here in the Garden of Eden when he recreated everything. In Genesis 1 and 2, he put his man in charge. And whether it was the first thing the man did, but somewhere along the man line, chapter 3, he turned around and he, in essence, submitted his authority to Satan. And at that point, Satan becomes the god of this world. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 4 calls him the god of this world. Jesus, when he was being tempted on the mountain of temptation, Satan says, all the worlds that I show you, I can give you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Well, if he didn't have that to give, that could not have been a temptation to Jesus. So Satan is the god of this world systems and of the spiritual atmosphere. And the, 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 the body of Christ has been planted here on, in, on spiritual foreign soil to establish the kingdom of God on foreign territory. It's kind of like on the, on the, the invasion of Normandy. When, 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 the, when, the, when Germany had occupied Europe and the Allied forces made a landing on the beach to take it back. And that's kind of what the church is here to do. That's why Jesus said he's sitting until his enemies are made his footstool. And so that's the church's responsibility. And so we see here that, that, that so the first thing he says is we are not to be conformed to this world. And the reason he says that first is because all the systems of this world, all the teachings of this world, the the, the processes of this world are all designed to put pressure on you to conform you. Now let's talk about what this word conformed means. It is the Greek word. I was going to put a slide up, but you don't need to see it because I don't particularly want you to get caught up in the word. The word is suchamatizo. Suchamatizo. And I've talked about this before, but I want to go back over this. What this word is used when they would take... And they would make a coin. And I don't know how they do it now. But certainly in the days that this, the Bible was written, the New Testament was written, they would take a piece of gold or a piece of copper or bronze that was, that was, that was poured into a mold and it was a flat coin. And then they would take an imprint of the emperor's head or whatever the image they wanted to to make it look like. And they, with pressure, they would force it down onto the soft surface of the coin so when the pressure came up, the, the, the face of that coin now was the exact negative side of the mold that was pressured onto it. So here's the elements of that. You take something that, is, that has a, a clean surface and by an outside force that has a shape to it, it, the purpose of this force is to make this coin look like the mold that's being pressured onto it. You're following that? And that's exactly what the world system is designed, that you and I are immersed in, is designed to do. That's what 98% of the media is out there is designed to do. 
is to change how you think. It's to get you afraid. Oh my gosh. It's amazing how we become robots. Oh my goodness, there's a snow's coming, snowstorm coming. So everybody goes buys milk and bread. And you know why we think that? Because that's what the news tells us we're all buying. You understand you're being trained every day. Your mind is being renewed every day to think the world system. And not only that, there's pressure to do it. Then there's the pressure of life. And we talked about this, uh, was it last week? We talked about, you know, trying to go upstream. Last time, I think it was last time. And, and because we're in a world that's going one direction. And it's hell. There's the world system, is, 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 there's a spirit behind it. And it's Satan. And his goal is to take everybody on the face of this earth that's ever lived to hell. Just to spite God. And the method he uses is to, take, to, to keep us, first of all, from hearing and receiving the gospel, because that's what saves us. But you and I heard anyway. By the way, that tells you how powerful he is. Because you understand if there's anything Satan would have wanted to prevent in your life, it was you getting saved. And he couldn't do it, could he? So if he couldn't stop that, then he can't do anything else in your life without your permission. Because my Bible tells me in Colossians chapter 1, we've been transferred out of the domain, the authority, the power of darkness, His kingdom, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's spiritually. But physically and emotionally, we exist in the place where His kingdom operates. But God's given us what we need to be able to operate above the kingdom of darkness and overcome the kingdom of darkness, at least in our lives. Okay. So the word conformed means press, pressured to look on the... So here's what happens. Satan couldn't stop you from getting saved. When you received Christ, the Bible tells us that God took out of you your old nature and put in you a new nature. That new nature is born of Him. When we use the term born again... That's the term Jesus used in John chapter 3. When you're born the first time, your parents' nature was instilled in your body. It's called DNA. And in there was the roadmap for what your face was going to look like, what your, what your structure was going to look like, or your hair was going to look like, and not only what you were going to look like as a baby, but even as you got older, what you were going to look like. All that was in the nature of your flesh that was the result of the combination of your mother and father together in your mother's womb. And when you came to Christ, God did the same thing in your spirit. God took your old spirit out and put in you a new spirit that's born of or out of Him. That's how you became a child of God, the same way you became a child of your natural parents, is how you became a spiritual child of God. The difference is with your parents, it was your body. With God, it's your spirit. And then, just to make sure you can do it, he said, not only do I put a new spirit in you, but I take my spirit. And I'm putting him in you to enable you to do it. 
So once you're saved, you have the nature of God and the power of God in you right now, sitting in that blue chair. So what's Satan got to do? I couldn't stop that from happening. So he can't stop you from having God's nature in you. So the next best thing is to make sure what happens in you doesn't affect anybody else. Now they can't see down inside you. So you say, oh, I'm born again, I'm a child of God. And you look just the same way you did before. Because they can't look inside you. You don't have a window in the front and where you can just pull the flap up and say, see, I've got God's nature in me. Wouldn't that be nice? So how were they supposed to see? Because when you got saved, you began a process of that nature working itself to the outside. Because when God's nature begins to show up on the outside, what do you mean? Joy. Sometimes, you know, we're praising God and worshiping Him, but our face doesn't know it yet. I've got the joy of the Lord. I may believe that, and it's so, but somehow my face doesn't realize that. And so what Satan's strategy is, I couldn't stop God from putting his nature in you. So the next best thing is I'm going to keep such pressure on you from the world and the world system so that no matter whether God's nature is in you, on the outside, you're going to look like the world. Because all other people see is the outside. So he starts out by saying, do not be pressured by the circumstances of your life, by the media around you, by friends, relatives. Don't know that because there's a spirit behind that to mold you on the outside to think and talk and act just like the world. Because when we do that, we no longer have a testimony. And you'll see how important that is in a minute. Now that's what we're not to do. What are we to do? But be transformed. The word transformed is a completely different word. It's the Greek word metamorphomai, from which we get metamorphosis. And literally what it means is to take what's on the inside and make it show up on the outside. In, in, um, I've got to turn over my notes here. In Matthew 7, 9 to 12, and Mark 9, 2, which is the same story, which is Jesus' transfiguration. When Jesus took Matthew, uh, James and John and Peter up on the mountain, and he gets up there and they look up and Jesus is now in his transfigured state. The glory of God is coming out of him. And they see him them talking to, to Moses and Elijah. The, the, nothing dropped down out of heaven it came out of him. And the word that's used there for transfigured is the same word. In other words, the glory that was in him was now released to come out of him and they could see his manifest glory coming out of him. 
So we're not to let the world's systems and the world's pressures... That's why, that's what's behind most of the trouble that comes into your life. It's designed to keep you so weighed down by them that you talk like the world, you feel like the world, you think like the world. So to everybody else's perspective, there's no difference between you and them. That's his strategy. But we are instead to allow what's on the inside of us to begin to come out. That's why Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. Take the salvation that's been deposited in you and it's your job to work it to the outside so that others can begin to see what God did in you when you received Christ. Now here's why it's so important. So the first thing, there are three things in this verse. The first is something we're not to do. The second is something that we are to do. And the third is why it's so important. And this is why this course is not just important for your life and your sake and your blessing and your, your walking with God, but there's so much at stake by whether you renew your mind or not. Because we missed the last part of this. That you may prove... That you may prove what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. (laughs) Verse 8. To me... This is Paul, who am the least of all the saints. This grace was given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship. That means the sharing together of the mystery which from the beginning of ages... So there's a mystery. Which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Look at this. To the intent that now... So through all the ages, there's some mystery that God's had that's been hidden. And now, verse 10 says, this manifold, many-sided wisdom of God might be made known. Look at this. By the church. To what? The principalities and powers and heavenly places. Let, Let me bring this down to what we're talking about. The word prove to me is the term that's used in a courtroom. And in a courtroom, you have a judge who makes the decision on evidence and what can be admitted and what can't be admitted and administers the law. But you have a jury. Here's the jury box. You have a jury and their job is to listen to the evidence and decide the facts of what happened. Now, since the jury wasn't there to see it, they don't know what happened. So the only way I, as a lawyer, can convince them or prove to them what happened is by presenting what in law is called evidence. And there's several types of evidence. One is physical evidence, which is the knife with the blood stain on it. But the most common evidence is where somebody saw something. 
So you have them come to court, and listen carefully to the words, and you sit them in a witness stand, and you ask them to tell the jury what they saw. And the term that's used for what they tell the jury, listen carefully, is their testimony. You and I have a testimony. of what God's done for us, of the mercy that God's shown us, and what He's done in us as a result of that mercy. Jesus told His disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power of on high. Then they could be His witness. Paul says here, it's vital that you not allow the world systems to pressure you and conform you so that you act on the outside just like the world. Instead, what you've got to do is you've got to become transformed, changed. You've got to complete the process of salvation, not to go to heaven, complete the process of salvation that God inspired in, that God planted in you when His seed was put in you so that that seed can begin to come to the outside so that when it comes to the outside, other people can see a testimony of what God's is like. We're talking about what's at stake in you being transformed. But I used to think, oh yeah, that's so the world around me can see it. It's even bigger than that. Look at this verse. To the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. We're the witness. The church is in the witness box. Except we don't sit in the box. We live our life out among the world. The world watches you in the pressures you are under. They look to see if you're different than other people. But look what's at stake. Might be made known by the church, not just to the world, but to the principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. What's sitting in this witness stand? See, there's an eternal picture going on here. This isn't just our witnessing to those that are alive on the earth right now. God's trying to prove something. Not how strong He is. Who's He going to prove that to? Not how holy he is. Who does he need to prove that to? What does God want to prove to the spiritual forces in the heavenly places? What does God want to prove about himself? Not his power, not his majesty, not his glory. They know that. What is the thing that they can't comprehend about him? His mercy. We've got angelic beings looking at you and me, saying, what would God have to do with them? Why would God spend any caring, any part of His heart for these things? 
Why would he do that? They can't conceive of that. That God would treasure you and me. In all our sin and wickedness and rebellion, just like the angels that fell, we were no different. And yet God looked at you and me, the weakest of all His creations, and said, I'm going to use you to prove to them what my mercy can do. So, and how does this transformation take place? By the renewing of our mind. We went through all of this for us to understand what's at stake. It's not just, well, I need to renew my mind so that my life can be better. God is using you as a witness in the eternal witness box. Not to prove how smart you are or how much you can learn or how strong you are or how resilient you are. He wants to use your life just as it is to show how merciful He is. And what His mercy can do in the life of someone like you and me when it becomes a revelation to us and we begin to love Him not because we have to, but because we want to. Well, we make a living sacrifice, not because we have to, but because we want to. It's a testimony to all the angelic beings who don't understand what this is all about, of the power of His mercy and of His love. And you and I are essential witnesses in this great eternal cosmic trial. So next week, we're going to begin to learn what this process is about.